We left on November 1st, arrived in the Philippines on November 20th, and uh, four months later, I was a POW. Most people remember that Pearl Harbor was bombed early one Sunday morning, which meant that it was still nighttime in the Philippines. But uh, when the sun came up in the Philippines, nine and a half hours later, uh, here came the, uh, the Japanese bombers and the, uh, their, their fighting planes. And would you believe that just like they caught all of our ships uh, at Pearl Harbor, uh, in the harbor, and sunk most of them, would you believe that they caught all of our airplanes on the ground, destroying most of them? It was called a death march, not of how many died, of the 12,000 Americans, only about 1,700 lived to come home. But they call it a death march because of the way they died. If you stopped on the road, you were killed. If you had a malaria attack, they killed you. If you had to stop to defecate, they killed you. If you just couldn't take another step, they killed you. And uh, I was glad that we had the work to do. That Not that I wanted anybody to be wounded, but it kept my thoughts on what I something besides what was happening outside. And I remember uh, looking out after the bombing and seeing Manila on fire. It was all around us. And I could hear the patients screaming for help. And how did they kill you? They'd either bayonet you to death, shoot you, or in some cases decapitate you. They did not give us water. They gave us no food. The temperature was about 108 degrees. The, the Americans that were captured, a, a good 80% of them had malaria. Another 50% had dysentery. So we were gunshot wounds, malaria, dysentery, and we had to walk this distance that they wanted us to. Under these conditions, it was, it was unbearable. Hello everyone, and welcome to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Students of history have no doubt heard and read volumes about Pearl Harbor and D-Day, and most can tell you that World War II was the costliest war in history, involving the vast majority of the world's countries and costing more deaths and destruction than any other war in history. World War II began in September of 1939, when Hitler's German forces invaded Poland and lasted until September of 1945, when Japan finally surrendered its forces, Germany already having been beaten. The American Battlefield Monuments Commission, headquartered in Arlington, Virginia, maintains the responsibility for maintaining the cemeteries for fallen United States servicemen and women around the world. Memorials and markers within these cemeteries recall and honor the dead and the missing in action in order that their sacrifices will never be forgotten. The American Battlefield Monuments Commission website at abmc.gov is one place on the Internet 
that anyone who truly appreciates the cost of freedom should go to. It will shock most students of World War II to learn that the Manila American Cemetery, located just outside the city of Manila in the Philippines, holds the largest number of graves of our military dead of World War II. The graves of 17,058 Americans who gave their lives to defeat evil and aggression. Most of them on the Philippines, some from New Guinea. That cemetery occupies 152 acres on a prominent plateau, visible at a distance from the east, south, and west. The headstones in Manila are aligned in 11 plots, forming a generally circular pattern, and set among masses of a wide variety of tropical trees and shrubbery. It has a chapel there, and that chapel is a white masonry building enriched with sculpture and mosaic, which stands near the center of the cemetery. In front of it on a wide terrace are two large hemicycles. Twenty-five mosaic maps recall the achievements of the American armed forces in the Pacific, China, India, and Burma fronts. On rectangular tranny limestone piers within the hemicycles are inscribed the tablets of the missing, containing 36,286 names. Rosettes mark the names of those since recovered and identified. Carved in the floors are the seals of the American states and its territories. From the memorial and other points within the cemetery, there are impressive views over the lowlands to Laguna de Bay and toward the distant mountains. That and other American cemeteries on the Philippines represents the American side of the costly war in the Philippines. Over 50,000 Filipino soldiers fighting side-by-side side with Americans lost their lives fighting the Japanese. Over one million Filipino citizens, non-combatants, men, women, and children also lost their lives as a result of the Japanese invasion and brutal four-year occupation. If the numbers seem staggering, and they should, the Philippine Islands were just one of the targets in the Japanese path of devastation and human suffering, which cost millions of lives between 1937 and 1945, when it required the dropping of atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki to finally end their maniacal aggression and bring peace to all areas touched by the Pacific Ocean. Many people today are unaware that the Japanese occupation of the Philippines during World War II constituted one of the worst war crimes in World War II history, that being the war crime described as the Rape of Manila in 1945, which will be covered in Part 2 of this story. Today, in Part 1, we'll tell the story of how, when, and why war came to the Philippine Islands, along with the controversial blunders, the hardships suffered by soldiers and civilians, the lessons learned, and the stories. These were some of the darkest days of World War II. War in the Philippines arrived on December 8, 1941, the day after Pearl Harbor, when Japanese planes flying from Formosa, today's Taiwan, which was then held by the Japanese, attacked the American air bases in the northern Philippines, and later landed troops which defeated the combined American and Filipino forces, then occupied that country for four years, 
resulting in the deaths of over 100,000 civilians and soldiers. It was on the Philippines in 1942 that Americans surrendered 78,000 fighting men, of which only a tiny percentage survived, an act which remains an American disgrace and will remain forever the largest surrender of any American-led force in history. It was during the war in the Philippines that the heroic nurses known today as the Angels of Bataan entered the history books, and it was on the Philippine island of Luzon that American and Filipino soldiers earned the title the Battling Bastards of Bataan for their heroic last stand against the Japanese. This began on the northern Philippine island of Luzon as the Japanese invaded, after which our armies followed a retreating route southward toward Manila Bay, finally ending at the southern tip of the Bataan Peninsula, and finally the island fortress of Corregidor, which protects the entrance to Manila Bay. You'll notice I pronounce B-A-T-A-A-N as Bataan. I did check with five different pronunciation services. Two indicated Bataan. Two more indicated Bataan. And one indicated a more Philippine pronunciation of Bataan. I prefer to use Bataan. And it was in the Philippines, after the Battle of Bataan and the siege and Battle of Corregidor had taken place, followed by the humiliating surrender, that the remainder of the starving, wounded, and malaria-ridden American and Filipino troops were marched 75 miles north from the southern tip of the Bataan Peninsula in 108-degree heat to waiting prison camps, while Japanese guards exacted every cruelty known to man upon every soldier who fell along the way, murdering in cold blood over 1,200 unarmed men, prisoners, during the five-day forced march which became known as the Bataan Death March. Approximately 75,000 troops began the march, 50,000 of them Filipino soldiers and 25,000 of them Americans. And of these, somewhere between 10 and 12,000 were able to escape during those five days to eventually join guerrilla forces throughout the Philippines. Today's story will set the stage for part two, in which we will cover the Bataan Death March guerrilla fighting during the occupation, the civilian heroes of the Philippine resistance, the Battle of Manila, as well as the Battle for Luzon, and the incredible story of the raid on Cabanatuan, during which the last surviving 512 American prisoners were rescued during a behind-enemy-line special operation known as the Great Raid, or Raid on Cabanatuan, by 121 Army Rangers and their guerrilla counterparts in January of 1945. There were 30,000 Americans serving on the Philippines when Japan attacked in 1941. Outside of those who had joined guerrilla forces, only 500 of the 25,000 surrendered American men remained, those being barely alive, and they were being kept in the Japanese prison camp at Cabanatuan. The Japanese starved to death, murdered, or shipped out all the remaining American and Filipino prisoners of war to other camps as Americans began to retake the Philippines in 1945. The raid on Cabanatuan is featured in the John Wayne film Back to Bataan, and we'll cover some unknown facts about the making of that film as well in part two, and we'll recall the heroism of the spies who managed to get medicine and food to those prisoners to keep them alive so that they could tell the story that the Japanese no doubt wish had never been told 
the shame of their military war crimes committed through the Pacific and Southeast Asia during World War II is no doubt too great a burden for them to accept, and they decided long ago to bury and forget their actions. Germany has had to swallow their bitter pill, but Japan has somehow escaped that responsibility. The stories of heroism that occurred there in the Philippine Islands during those years are literally too many to be told, but we will cover a number of them here. The prison camps for surrendered American and Filipino soldiers were another story. Death was something many men prayed for at these camps. A Palawan camp escapee named Gene Nielsen was the first to get word to American intelligence on how prisoners were being mistreated and murdered. He was an Army PFC who had been with the 59th Coast Artillery at Corregidor when he was captured by the Japanese in May of 1942. Author Hampton Sides, in his excellent book Ghost Soldiers, relates the story that Nielsen told an Army intelligence officer of his escape and of the Japanese cruelty committed upon the internees at that camp. Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. I also check out their new stuff, like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers as Cary Grant. This story comes from his daughter Jennifer Grant and ex-wife Diane Cannon. It's a series. The performance of Jason Isaacs, who plays Cary Grant, is top-notch. I highly recommend it. You can only find it on my favorite TV, BritBox. Sign up to BritBox today to stream Archie and other fan favorites today from any device. I have a special limited-time offer for my U.S. and Canadian listeners. Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code 1001STORIES at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001STORIES at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. When news of the American landings reached that camp, the Japanese tricked the inmates, who had spent three years working to build and repair the airstrip there, into believing an air raid was imminent, forcing them to take cover in the ditches that they had dug nearby for those air raids. After the inmates ran to the ditches, the Japanese immediately doused them with gasoline and set fire to them. In the melee that ensued, some Americans, bodies on fire, charged their captors and were beheaded or shot. Some with their bodies on fire reached their captors and hugged them, setting the captors on fire, and a handful of others nearest the fence ran for it and were shot, leaving their bodies pinned to the barbed wire fence. Another dozen or so made it under the fence to a cliff above the sea and jumped, only to find there were more Japanese guards down on the beach, who shot most of them as they reached the bottom. The others were burned alive by a pair of Japanese officers who carried a gas can and were enjoying torturing them, starting with lighting the prisoners' feet on fire first and then watching them scream and beg for mercy. The few who still survived made it to the water and swam. Nielsen had been hit twice by bullets out in the water, but managed to escape, and was found by friendly Filipinos, and finally evacuated to the island of Moritai. Cabana Tuan, which was the largest prisoner camp on the islands, was the scene of one of the most heroic raids of World War II, 
and we'll cover that, as promised, in Part 2, as well as give it more mention in just a moment. Today, the United States and the Philippines continue to share a special relationship, and they're one of our most valued non-NATO allies. Only four years ago, a research poll showed that 91% of Filipinos view America favorably. The U.S. works closely with the Philippines to reduce poverty and increase prosperity, and nearly 400,000 Americans visit the Philippines each year. Many come to visit the battlefield monuments to honor the sacrifice of the men who fought there. One of those men was my uncle, Woody Corman. I only met him a few times, but I liked him. He never told me about the Bataan Death March, but he had told my father about it once. Other than that, he never spoke of it. That was the way with many of those guys. The war was a memory that they did not want to revisit. World War II, the global war which lasted, at least officially, from September 1, 1939, with Germany's invasion of Poland, to September 2, 1945, when Japan surrendered, and involved more than 100 million people in 30 countries, was the deadliest conflict in human history marked by somewhere between 70 and 85 million casualties. No one's sure. And the 15 million disparity between those two numbers of casualties I just gave you should shock you. 15 million souls just don't go missing unless something extremely tragic is occurring on a world scale. No words exist that can describe this kind of loss to humanity. What caused World War II? Three dictators who wanted power and wealth. Not one had any compassion for human lives. Hitler wanted all of Europe. Italy's Mussolini wanted wealth and power. Tojo, Japan's minister of war and dictator, wanted to control an area spanning one-third of the globe. And he wanted control of all its resources and people, whom he considered less than human and only useful as slaves to the mighty Japanese Empire. The island of Japan was outstripping its resources, and the world community was not giving Japan the respect it wanted. It is very important to this story that we chronicle the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor and the Philippines and elsewhere to set the stage for the surrender of tens of thousands of American and Philippine servicemen after their long and brutal last stand in the Philippines and their subsequent treatment by the Japanese during the forced march to and while in the prison camps there. The raid on Cabanatuan was a daring Allied raid upon one of those camps with the purpose of freeing the prisoners of that camp. Books and movies have been made in remembrance of that raid and those few who survived Japanese atrocities in the Philippines. And it is to those who did and didn't make it out that this story is dedicated Recognizing the courage of those who fought and those who volunteered is, of course, important because the world needs heroes. Good men who are willing to lay down their lives for a just cause and to defeat evil. But beyond that lies our purpose for retelling this story. That being, if we do not read and understand history and understand the evil inherent in mankind and the danger of closed governments ruled by ruthless dictators, we are doomed to repeat it. At 6.30 in the morning of Sunday, December 7, 
1941, at the home of the U.S. Pacific Fleet in Hawaii. The crew of the USS ship Antares, towing an ammunition barge in a restricted area just outside the entrance to Pearl Harbor, saw what looked like the conning tower of a submarine. A nearby destroyer, the Ward, steamed over at full speed for a closer look, studied the odd conning tower through their glasses, and recognizing it was not a U.S. submarine, began to fire upon the tower, which they did, hitting it with the second shot. They then dropped four depth charges off the stern, and a huge plume of seawater shot up into the air, telling them that the sub had been hit. The idea that the sub was Japanese, and that it served as a vanguard for a full-scale Japanese attack on the U.S. Pacific fleet at Pearl Harbor, never crossed anyone's minds. It wasn't until American sailors and pilots spotted the rising sun insignias on the sides of the first wave of 190 planes that they knew that Japan was attacking them. There were 70 American warships nestled in the harbor that Sunday morning. Most of the American crewmen and pilots were just waking up to that day, a day which the president would soon be calling a day of infamy. The first wave of Japanese planes bombed, strafed, and torpedoed the hapless American ships, seriously damaging or sinking the Arizona, the Oklahoma, the West Virginia, the California, and others, and destroyed nearly all the U.S. planes at Ford Island, Kanoe, Awa Field, Wheeler Field, and Hickam. The U.S. servicemen, being hammered with no way to retaliate, went crazy with rage, tearing machine guns out of wrecked planes and mounting them on ash cans and workbenches, firing from burning ships' batteries, and in some cases, taking to the air against impossible odds. The second wave of Japanese planes strafed medical crews trying to save burning and wounded men, destroyed the battleships Nevada and Pennsylvania, and did their best to kill every living person in sight and sink every ship, as well as completely destroy every airfield and every plane. The reasoning behind this deadly surprise attack was that with no Pacific fleet, the Americans, which Japan thought to be a weak culture and a weak people afraid of war, as proven by their refusal up until now to aid England in its fight against Hitler and Mussolini, would have no choice but to surrender. Even if they chose to fight, any chance of defending the Pacific was now lost to them. As Roosevelt gave his day of infamy speech, he also outlined exactly what the Japanese were up to in the Pacific. In addition, he went on to say, American ships have been torpedoed on the high seas between Hawaii and San Francisco. They have launched an attack against Malaya. Last night, he said, the Japanese attacked Hong Kong, Guam, Wake Island, Midway, and the Philippine Islands. He continued by saying, with confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounded determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph. So help us God. Three days later, Germany and Italy, having signed a secret pact with Japan the past year, also declared war on the United States, instantly committing the United States to a war on two huge fronts. To say that all of this was shocking news to every American would be an understatement. But things were about to get worse, much worse. The Philippines in 1941 
were in American territory, having been won as a result of the Spanish-American War, and a large group of American forces were stationed in the Philippines. The U.S. had promised independence to the Philippines by 1946, so the two represented the fighting forces on the Philippines. But considering the Japanese aggression that had been taking place in nearby Southeast Asia, it was amazing, considering the proximity to Japan, which had been on a war footing already for four years, and was obviously fortifying islands all over the Pacific in direct contradiction to the Pacific Mandate. How poorly equipped the Philippines were to fend off a Japanese invasion. Conspiracy theorists, as our December interview with British author Andy Thomas will reveal, and he's the author of a book called Conspiracies, believe that FDR allowed Pearl Harbor to happen. When you look at the Philippines, sitting right in the Japanese bullseye, and how poorly equipped they were, those same theorists might as well lump the Philippines in as well with Pearl Harbor. But also keep in mind, in truth, isolationist America was enjoying being protected by oceans on both sides. They had spent the better part of a decade suffering an economic depression. The government did not or could not make a priority out of military readiness, and being outweaponed wasn't too eager to get in Japan's or Germany's way. The obvious biggest example of that was the fact that the U.S. refused to come to Britain's aid, while Germany, having conquered most of Europe, was bombing the living hell out of Great Britain. Japan had conquered Korea and half of China. And oh yes, Japan had even poked the American bear by picking up a downed Amelia Earhart back in 1937 and discovering that the very weak U.S. was afraid to respond, fearing that it might turn into an incident that could provoke a war. So FDR, no doubt lacking more naval intelligence than a picture of her and Fred on a dock in the Marshalls, buried her situation in a highly classified file, and left her and her co-pilot to die in Japanese captivity. So the Japanese just weren't seeing the U.S. as a country that was ready to stand up and fight. And yes, the fact that they picked her up will never be proven. It's my opinion, after years of research, and if you've listened to my past shows, you know exactly where I stand on it, as well as many others. Strategically, the 7,600 islands that make up the Philippines occupied a crucial position in the Pacific. Being located south of Japan and southeast of South China and Hong Kong. From Hong Kong, you can look south and east past Taiwan, then called Formosa, and in the South China Sea, you will see the Philippine Islands, running northwest to southeast, with larger Luzon Island at the northwest end. Below these, you'll find New Guinea and the continent of Australia. Japan had already attacked and occupied Manchuria in 1931. Later in 1937, China and Korea, and then more recently, Malaya and British-controlled Singapore, but militarily needed to wipe out the British forces in Burma and the American and Filipino forces on the major Philippine islands of Luzon and Mindanao in order to prevent the U.S. or Great Britain from using those countries to launch bombing attacks on Japan and Saipan. British-owned Australia was another thorn in Japan's side, but one they believed they would win when Great Britain collapsed under the weight of Germany's might. When the Japanese struck the Philippines the day after Pearl Harbor, the Philippine army was far undermanned and woefully short of equipment. Many of the rifles were World War I vintage, 
and so were the destroyers that the U.S. Navy had in their Asiatic fleet, commanded by Admiral Thomas Hart. The U.S. Army was called the Philippine Division, and commanded by Major General Jonathan M. Wainwright. He had at his disposal 35 B-17 bombers and 100 P-40 Mustang fighter planes. General MacArthur, with headquarters in Manila, located on Luzon Island, commanded all the Army forces in the Far East. He was a distinguished World War I vet, and a graduated first in his class at West Point. But when the Japanese attacked the Philippines, MacArthur, some say, committed one of the worst blunders of the war, and one that leads to the core of our story, proving to some, at least, that graduating at the top of your class and having wartime experience does not necessarily make you a good commander. To others, especially those who have been in the military, blame always slides downhill, and a scapegoat is picked. Then it becomes a choice of who to circle the wagons around, and deciding who is needed and who is expendable. MacArthur, the top echelon decided, was needed, and he could claim that orders were sent to his commanding Air Force General, Brereton, to be on watch for a number of things, including sabotage. But when the hammer came down on the Philippines, writes Daniel Mortensen in the Pacific War, quote, Instead of acting promptly to remove the bombers out of range of the Japanese airfields on Formosa, the military leadership at Manila, worried about possible sabotage, increased the guard and bunched the aircraft together to make it easier to protect them from enemy agents. He continued, Neither Brereton nor MacArthur paid enough heed to the warnings of possible Japanese attack to cancel a Saturday night party in the ballroom of the hotel where MacArthur lived. Crewmen of the B-17s still at Clark Field attended the affair, which lasted until 2 a.m. on December 8th, just about the time the first Japanese aircraft attacked Pearl Harbor. Revelers from the bomber squadron carried in their pockets orders to fly to Del Monte on the day after the party. End quote. Clark Air Base in the Philippines became the second Pearl Harbor. Two major successful surprise attacks in two days. It was a clown show, an American embarrassment, and all of them, from Brereton all the way up to FDR and most of the Joint Chiefs, all influenced by a lousy economy that FDR did not know how to turn around, a population that did not want another war, and a Congress that had no money to spend, were to blame for what happened when the Japanese attacked. They had all ignored the Boy Scout motto, be prepared. There were warnings, and some men in high places called the invasion right, but their warnings were ignored. Recently, a declassified U.S. intelligence memorandum to President Franklin D. Roosevelt indicated that he was warned three days before the Pearl Harbor attack that the Japanese Empire was eyeing up Hawaii with a view to open conflict. The information adds to proof that Washington dismissed red flags signaling that mass bloodshed was looming and war was imminent. The memorandum read, In anticipation of possible open conflict with this country, Japan is vigorously utilizing every available agency to secure military, naval, and commercial information, paying particular attention to the West Coast, the Panama Canal, and the territory of Hawaii. So said the 26-page memo, dated December 4, 1941 three days before Pearl Harbor. 
marked as confidential, and titled Japanese Intelligence and Propaganda in the United States. It flagged up Japan's surveillance of Hawaii under a section headlined Methods of Operation and Points of Attack. MacArthur's headquarters in Manila were notified on the 7th of December, the day Pearl Harbor was attacked, that the Japanese had attacked Pearl Harbor and that an attack from Japan upon the Philippines was imminent. So the order came down that as many as half of their planes stay in the air at all times to prevent a surprise attack in the Philippines. But apparently, when the attack came on the 8th, they were all down. Reasons not clear, and that's when the Japanese bombers and fighter planes arrived, bombing and strafing all our planes, which were neatly arranged at the airfields. And when the smoke cleared after the first attack, half of the U.S. air power in Southeast Asia was destroyed. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. The Far East Air Force had its headquarters at Nielsen Field and was under the command of Major General Lewis H. Brereton, who was required to report to MacArthur through MacArthur's Chief of Staff, Brigadier General Richard K. Sutherland. At the time of the attack, the Far East Air Force had more planes than the Hawaiian Department that protected Pearl Harbor. The fleet of 35 Boeing B-17 Flying Fortress bombers was the largest number assigned to any Army Air Force. B-17s could also use Del Monte Airfield in southern Mindanao, where military personnel lived and worked in tents on a pineapple plantation. The importance of Del Monte was that aircraft at Del Monte were beyond the range of land-based Japanese bombers headed down from Formosa, but were similarly unable to reach Japanese targets. In addition to the B-17s, Far East Air Force aircraft inventory on the 8th of December included 107 Curtis P-40 Warhawk fighters, 26 Seversky P-35 fighters, 18 Douglas B-18 Bolo bombers, 12 Boeing P-26 P-shooter fighters, 11 Curtis O-52 Owl observation planes, 2 Douglas O-46 observation planes, 8 North American A-27 ground attack aircraft, and 3 Martin B-10 bombers. When Japanese pilots finished their attack on December 8th, of the 17 B-17s on the ground at Clark Field, 12 were destroyed, 4 were damaged, and 1 escaped damage. Two evaded damage while on reconnaissance missions and returned after the raid. Eleven B-17s had been flown to Mindanao before the raid, and five more reached there on the day of the attack. The P-40 fighters who managed to make it aloft were unable to reach the altitude of the Japanese bombers and suffered a poor exchange rate in low-altitude combat with strafing Zero fighters. Thirty-four P-40s were destroyed on the ground or in aerial combat. We have to guess that they were not using the same aerial techniques that Chenault was using in China with the Flying Tigers, which had a huge success rate against the Japanese Zeros. The United States Army Air Force's commanding general, Henry H. Hap Arnold, called Brereton that afternoon to ask, How the hell 
were you caught by surprise nine hours after receiving news of the Pearl Harbor attack? Heads would fly later, at least at Pearl, when Walter Short was relieved of command of the Hawaiian Department on the 17th of December by Army Chief of Staff General George C. Marshall, who took no similar action against MacArthur, despite remarking to a reporter a few days later, I just don't know how MacArthur happened to let his planes get caught on the ground. Half of MacArthur's air power had now been destroyed. Japanese forces were now steaming toward Formosa and then on toward their Philippine objectives, the final goal being Manila. Those objectives included preliminary landings on the coast of the northernmost island, Luzon, in order to capture airstrips, always the first goal of securing islands in war. Japanese troops would come ashore at Apari, on Luzon's northern tip. Without air power, you can't defend your men on the ground. MacArthur had already lost half of his, so the fight was already half over before it started. He could do very little to defend Luzon, needing to save his forces. The Japanese attack was being led by General Masahuru Hama, who, after capturing the airstrip on Luzon, would land the bulk of his infantry at Lingayan Gulf, on the west side of Luzon Island. The first bright spot in the resistance came when two American bombers, which had survived the devastation at Clark Field, started dropping bombs on Japanese troop transports. One of these planes was piloted by 26-year-old Colin Kelly, and his bombardier was Corporal Meyer Levin from Brooklyn. They made it through anti-aircraft fire and did what damage they could, knowing that the skies would soon be filled with Japanese fighter planes and that it was very likely a suicide mission. And they nearly made it back to Clark Field before they were jumped and their plane caught on fire. Kelly ordered the crew to bail out, but before he had a chance to jump, he crashed with his plane. Within three days, Japanese General Hama controlled Luzon's northern coast and its airfields as far south as San Fernando. The citizens of Manila, 100 miles southward on Luzon, waited in terror to see what would happen next. Manila sits on the inner end of a bay on the west coast of that island, which runs north and south. A peninsula called Bataan, which is jungled and mountainous, juts down into that bay. Its only advantage being that if you have to make a last stand and you have no protection from enemy planes, Bataan makes a good choice. It's heavily jungled, your infantry has a field of fire from a higher position and can dig in. The disadvantages are lack of water, jungle malaria, and the fact that unless relief ships or men can reach you, it's a last stand. There was no way out. Look across the water from the south point of Bataan, and you have the small island fortress of Corregidor guarding the entrance to Manila Bay, the last resort given in the American war plan should it get that far. And it did. On Luzon, only one day after Pearl Harbor, small units of Japanese soldiers began to come ashore. Their goal? To capture the airfields at Bataan Island, Apari, and Vegan City. These small-scale landings preceded the main assault on 22nd of December 1941 at Lingayan Gulf in Pangasinan and Lamon Bay by the 14th Japanese Imperial Army led by Lieutenant General Masaharu Hama. By effectively neutralizing U.S. air and naval power in the Philippines, 
the Japanese had gained supremacy that isolated the Philippines from reinforcement and resupply, and provided itself with major airfields for support of its invasion forces and staging bases for further operations in the Dutch East Indies. One can only theorize what the outcome would have been if the Americans had not lost most of their air power on December 8th and been able to stave off the attack. When MacArthur, a distinguished World War I veteran and a man who knew the Philippines, was called back to active duty, the latest revision plans for the defense of the Philippine Islands had been completed in April of that year and was called War Plan Orange, and that involved hostilities between the United States and Japan. Under War Plan Orange, the Philippine garrison was to hold the entrance to Manila Bay and deny its use to Japanese naval forces and ground forces were to prevent enemy landings. If the enemy prevailed, they were to withdraw to the Bataan Peninsula, which was recognized as the key to the control of Manila Bay. It was to be defended to the last man. In addition to the regular U.S. Army troops, the defenders could rely on the Philippine Army, which had been organized and trained by General MacArthur. But in April of 41, the Navy estimated that it would require at least two years for the Pacific Fleet to fight its way across the Pacific. Army planners in early 1941 believed supplies would be exhausted within six months and the garrison would fall. MacArthur assumed command of the Allied Army in July of 1941 and rejected War Plan Orange as defeatist, preferring a more aggressive course of action. Keep in mind that this was all planning six months before Pearl Harbor. When the Japanese did make their first landings on December 10th and 12th, at the northern and southern extremities of Luzon, MacArthur made no effort to confront them. He correctly guessed that these landings were designed to secure advance air bases and that the Japanese had no intention of driving on Manila from any of these beachheads. Both landing spots were over 100 miles from Manila. On December 20th, U.S. Navy submarine USS Stingray spotted a large convoy of troop ships with escorts. This was General Hama's landing force, and included 85 troop transports, two battleships, six cruisers, and two dozen destroyers. The convoy was engaged by three submarines, USS Stingray, USS Sori, and USS Salmon, who fired torpedo after torpedo into the convoy, most of which failed to explode due to the Mark 14 torpedo's defective detonators. In all, just two troop ships were sunk before Japanese destroyers chased the submarines away. Those defective torpedoes nearly lost us the Battle of Midway and rendered the lives and sacrifice of the low-flying American airmen whose job it was to deliver those torpedoes to the sides of Japanese carriers, to render those lives worthless as torpedo after torpedo bounced harmlessly off the sides of those ships and Japanese gunners shot the slow-moving torpedo planes down. It was a suicide mission, and we covered that in our story of Midway. General MacArthur intended to move his men with their equipment and supplies in good order to their defensive positions. He charged the North Luzon Force under Major General Jonathan Mayhew Wainwright IV with holding back the main Japanese assault and keeping the road to Bataan open for use by the South Luzon Force of Major General George Parker, which proceeded quickly and in remarkably good order, given the chaotic situation. To achieve this, Wainwright deployed his forces in a series of five defensive lines outlined in War Plan Orange, each one, if forced to give up, leading the troops further south toward the Bataan Peninsula. 
the main force of General Hama's 14th Area Army, came ashore at Lingayan Gulf on the morning of December 22nd, and there the defenders failed to hold the beaches. By the end of the day, the Japanese had secured most of their objectives and were in position to emerge under the central plain. It became evident to General Wainwright in a fairly short time that he couldn't hold back the Japanese advance, and late on the afternoon of the 23rd, he telephoned General MacArthur's headquarters in Manila and informed him that any further defense of the Lingayan beaches was impracticable. He requested and was given permission then to withdraw behind the Agno River. MacArthur had two choices. Either make a firm stand on the line of the Agno and give Wainwright his best unit, the Philippine Division, for a counterattack, or withdraw all the way to Bataan in planned stages. He decided on the drawback, thus abandoning his own plan for defense and reverting to the old War Plan Orange plan. Having made his decision to withdraw to Bataan, having made his decision to withdraw to Bataan, MacArthur notified all force commanders on the night of 23rd December that War Plan Orange 3 was in effect. After that, it was one delaying action after another. The fiercest fighting occurred at the hastily emplaced Porak Guagua Line, where the 11th and 21st Divisions, respectively led by Brigadier Generals William E. Broger and Matteo Capinpin, with the 26th Cavalry Regiment of Colonel Clinton A. Pierce in reserve, held the line, mostly on open and unprepared ground, against massive aerial and artillery bombardment, strong tank assaults, and infantry bonsai attacks by the Takahashi and Tanaka detachments. Both sides suffered heavy casualties. Throughout that January and February of 1942, the American and Filipino forces were involved day and night in some of the most bitter combat of the war. Casualties ran high on both sides. Hand-to-hand combat was the rule, and every inch of baton was taken the hard way. The Japanese troops had reinforcements and supplies. The defenders had none. And malaria, dysentery, dehydration, and near starvation killed many more than bullets. On the night of March 12th, General MacArthur, his family, and several U.S. Air Force Far East staff officers left Corregidor for Mindanao aboard four PT boats, commanded by Lieutenant Commander John D. Bulkley. MacArthur was eventually flown to Australia, where he broadcast to the Filipino people his famous I Shall Return promise. By March 22nd, the defending army was renamed the United States Forces in the Philippines, and Lieutenant General Jonathan Wainwright was placed in command. Everywhere along the lines, the American and Filipino defenders were slowly driven back by Japanese tanks and infantry. Digging foxholes and setting up machine gun emplacements was routine. The men by this point knew that no help was coming and had consigned themselves to die fighting. They could be heard at times reciting a chant that had originally been penned by an American newsman. It went like this. Where the battling bastards of Bataan, no mama, no papa, no Uncle Sam, no aunts, no uncles, no nephews, no nieces, no pills, no planes, no artillery pieces, and nobody gives a damn. Based on his two prior attempts, General Hama had estimated that the final offensive would require a week to breach the Orion Bayjack line and a month to liquidate two final defense lines he believed had been prepared on Bataan. When the opening attack required just three days, he pushed his forces on April 6th to meet expected counterattacks 
head on. The Japanese then launched a drive into the center, penetrated into flanks held by the 22nd and 23rd Regiments of the 21st Division, captured Mount Samat, and outflanked all of 2nd Corps. Counterattacks by the U.S. Army and Philippine Scout regulars held in reserve were futile. Only the 57th Infantry gained any ground, and that was soon lost. All along the battlefront, units of 1st Corps, together with the devastated remnants of 2nd Corps, crumbled and straggled to the rear, meaning southward toward the Bataan Peninsula. One survivor said that from the south tip of the peninsula, you could see the men pouring out of the mountains and jungles like rivulets of water, limping, struggling, exhausted, and hungry. A constant stream of disorganized bunches of soldiers. The commanders on Bataan lost all contact with their units, except by runner in a few instances. In the last two days of the defense of Bataan, the entire Allied defense progressively disintegrated and then collapsed, clogging all roads with refugees and fleeing troops. By April 8, 1942, the senior U.S. commander on Bataan, Major General Edward P. King, saw the futility of further resistance and announced that his troops on Bataan had surrendered. He did this after taking a dangerous ride to a farmhouse near Lameo and meeting with Hama's number two, Colonel Mutu Nakayama, without asking Wainwright, whose command spot he had taken in the past few weeks, or telling anyone in the high command, all of whom were opposed to his doing this and would have told him so had they been informed. When Wainwright heard about it, he tried to countermand it, but King was unreachable by radio or courier. King had spared the high command of the task of having to do it, and he knew he would be court-martialed for doing this without authority. And in doing this, he had not surrendered the troops at Corregidor, the Rock, only his men on Bataan. The next morning, April 9, 1942, General King met with Major General Kamichiro Nagano, and, after several hours of negotiations, the remaining weary, starving, and emaciated American and Filipino defenders on the battle-swept Bataan Peninsula surrendered. The radio broadcast, Voice of Freedom, from Malinta Tunnel, Corregidor, April 9, 1942, went this way. Bataan has fallen. The Philippine-American troops on this war-ravaged and blood-stained peninsula have laid down their arms. With heads bloody but unbowed, they have yielded to the superior force and numbers of the enemy. The world will long remember the epic struggle that Filipino and American soldiers put up in the jungle fastness and along the rugged coast of Bataan. They have stood up uncomplaining under the constant and grueling fire of the enemy for more than three months. Besieged on land and blockaded by sea, cut off from all sources of help in the Philippines and in America, the intrepid fighters have done all that human endurance could bear. For what sustained them through all these months of incessant battle was a force that was more than merely physical. It was the force of an unconquerable faith, something in the heart and soul that physical hardship and adversity could not destroy. It was the thought of native land and all that it holds most dear. The thought of freedom and dignity and pride in these most priceless of all our human prerogatives. The adversary, in the pride of his power and triumph, will credit our troops with nothing less than the courage and fortitude that his own troops have shown in battle. Our men have fought a brave and bitterly contested struggle. 
"'All the world will testify to the most superhuman endurance "'with which they stood up until the last, "'in the face of overwhelming odds.' "'But this decision had to come. "'Men fighting under the banner of unshakable faith "'are made of something more than flesh, "'but they're not made of impervious steel. "'The flesh must yield at last. "'Endurance melts away, "'and the end of the battle must come. "'Baton has fallen, "'but the spirit that made it stand, "'a beacon to all the liberty-loving peoples of the world, "'cannot fail. "'Few sadder times can be recalled from World War II or from American history, for that matter. Was surrender the right call? 78,000 troops were there when Japan attacked. 500 prisoners, and a few thousand more, who had escaped to become guerrilla fighters, were still standing. Of those who King surrendered, somewhere between 30 and 50,000 were killed by the Japanese in prison camps, and on transport ships headed back toward prison camps in Japan. Why not just release them into the jungle, where at least they would have had a fighting chance? Why consign them to death and torture? While writing this, I recalled our interview with Rob Demarest, a TV personality who had worked as a host for Ghost Hunters International. And he had related the story of one of his most sad and shocking visits. When he and his team had gone to an abandoned hangar at Clark Airfield in the Philippines that had served as a hospital during the fighting there. They picked up lots of noise, he told me, on their recording devices while they were there, and later, when reviewing the recordings, at one point, clearly heard a young voice asking, Who won? He said one of the biggest regrets was not being able to hear the ghost speaking then, so he could have answered him. To be able to say that MacArthur did return, three years later, and that we won it. Stay tuned next Sunday night for part two of Hell in the Philippines. And we'll cover the final battle of Corregidor, the surrender of the American troops at Corregidor, that marked the fall of the Philippines and Asia, the fate of the army and navy nurses known today as the Angels of Bataan and Corregidor, the 75-mile death march called the Bataan Death March, the raid at Cabanatuan that saved the last living 500 prisoners from that surrender the story of the three-year war of the guerrilla fighters in the Philippines, the story of the resistance that risked their lives and often gave their lives to try and help the American and Filipino prisoners, the camps, the return of the American troops and MacArthur, the ferocious battle for Manila, the story of Camp Santo Tomas in Manila, which held over 5,000 prisoners, all civilians who were in Manila when the surprise attack came, the daring raid on Cabanatuan prison camp, and much more. We hope you join us as we continue this incredible saga, Hell in the Philippines. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We really appreciate reviews, and I wanted to read some of the recent ones we've received. The first one, five stars, phenomenal. I've been listening for years now, and figured it's time to send my love. I absolutely love this podcast. I've fallen asleep to it hundreds of times, as I always listen to podcasts at bedtime and then continue where I last remember while I'm making breakfast in the morning. This is one of my top three. Well done, well-researched, and never dull. That one from TIFF17, Apple Podcast, Canada. And this one, five stars, a great source of history and entertainment. This is my favorite podcast. John's delivery is engaging and entertaining. If you listen to the show, 
You're guaranteed to learn something new. That one from Dave W. 67, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, Who Said A Nation Divided? Five stars. Excellent history, reading, and informative. Your blooper, however, during John Wilkes Booth's suicide occurred in Enid, Oklahoma. Now, Jesus said, Any kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Luke Luke 11.17, Mark 3.24, Matthew 12.25. Depending upon translation. You are the most interesting, easy-to-hear podcaster I listen to on any given day. Thank you for your studies and research. You make few, and at that, minor mistakes. I'll keep listening, no matter what. That one from Christian Lee M., Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you, Christian. And A Nation Divided was an episode that we just shared over at 1001 History Challenge, one of our new shows. Check that out, 1001 History Challenge. Those are short episodes, averaging maybe seven, eight minutes apiece. I think you'll enjoy them very much. Little pieces of history and also pop culture. And this one, one of the best, five stars. Thanks, guys and gals, for your work. That one from John Selly, Apple Podcast, Canada. And this one, five stars, enjoying historic moments. A very good podcast, interesting and highly recommended. That one from Nexus XX, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one. Another good story. Five stars. Heard all kinds of stories about Booth and Lincoln from both sides of the family, north and south. But you've made another great story interesting. Keep it up. You're great. That one from Wolfie Wolf, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thanks to all of you for sharing these reviews. I know it takes time, a little extra effort, but it's greatly, greatly appreciated. Thanks for being such great fans. And don't forget to support us at patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Podcast. Your monthly support helps us in a lot of ways. We appreciate it. Thank you all of you who are helping us out now, and I hope more of you take a look at that page. And please do send us a few dollars a month, a little less than a cup of blended coffee once a month, to keep us going. Thank you. We'll be back next Sunday night, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Everybody stay safe, and we'll see you then.